Are you listening to this on Spotify right now? You should be. On Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite artists and podcasts in one place for free. You don't even need a premium account. Spotify has a huge catalog of podcasts on every topic, including the one you're listening to right now. On Spotify, you can follow your favorite podcasts so you never miss an episode. Premium Spotify users can download episodes to listen to offline, so wherever you are, you can hear me. It'll be like we're on that vacation in the mountains together. And of course, you can easily share what you're listening to with your friends on Instagram. If you haven't done so already, be sure to download the Spotify app and search for Be Reasonable with your moderator, Chris Paul. Or you can browse to find new podcasts in the tab marked Your Library. Oh, and make sure to follow me so you never miss an episode of Be Reasonable. Acting as moderator for tonight's broadcast. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Joining me today is Justin Hart. Justin was the former digital director for Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. He's a business consultant and information architect working in uh, artificial intelligence and demographics, etc. Does that does that about cover it, Justin? Oh, yeah. You got to mention steaks, though. I love some good steaks. Um, I'm really worried about my... Uh my average price of meat going up. So I'm watching those markets very closely too. So is, is one of your um, primary drivers of wanting to restart the economy, making sure that our supply chain to beef does not come up short? Oh, absolutely. And it's so interesting because when things fail, that's when you get a real sense as to how things work in general, right? Yes. And you never knew that was a problem. You, know, you know, take, for example, the, the toilet paper shortage that right. we had. Uh, it was explained to me by someone in the industry that the main reason the shortage was there was not so much a run on the stores. It was that people were, if you'll excuse the phrase, doing their stuff more at home, right? Uh -huh. Half of your stuff is sometimes done at work. And the businesses that produce paper wow. and produce toilet paper have a very different process and a very different distribution channel to get the uh, the works and the accoutrement that you need at all the various places of work versus putting it into you know downy super soft stuff that you like at home. So that that you know just real interesting things when things break, you get to know the supply chains and how things work very well. Wow, that's actually crazy. I would not have thought of that. I mean, it seems so intuitive. Once you hear it, like you're like, oh, yeah, of course, that's how it works. But wow, man. Yeah. People use. Yeah. God. OK. My mind's a little bit blown just to start. Um, OK. So, you know, I think that there's maybe what, 10 of us on all of Twitter that have the mindset we do about this entire situation. Um but I well, want to like a yeah. Go ahead. Is <laughs> it like a virus? It's growing. Where we're we, yeah, we are well, our yeah. own viral infection. Unfortunately, uh, we have you know not been able to spread this message too widely early enough. I mean, there's been so much pushback to the exact positions that we've held the entire time because it conflicts with the central narrative. But you know, this thing is quite obviously winding down at this point, and. 
I feel like screaming like, hey, I've been saying this for six, seven, eight weeks. Like we're stuck in California still. And I know you're in San Diego. Yeah. And I'll tell you, um, early March is when I first started to feel a little bit uh, of that skeptic vein coming in. And I'll tell you my journey just in a short term here. Uh, About two years ago, uh, I was out um, on the beaches there in San Diego. We were spending a week in a camper, a nice tradition that the family has here. I must have scuffed my arm, but I I got an infection. I got a staph infection, right? Mm -hmm. Staph is a natural flora that you have on your skin. But if it gets into your blood screen through a a cut, you go into septic shock Mm -hmm. and your body starts producing the same sort of things that happened with a virus. I got pleurisy of the lungs and I was so blown away. I was in the hospital for two weeks, uh, nearly died. But I came out, I said, what is going on? So I started getting into all of these things that I have a a deep background in data and technology and explaining things in some conveyance there. I have kind of bridging the worlds of business and technology. So I got to know all about the CDC data around two years ago. I wanted to know what are all the figures that they look at. And when I when I examined it, I realized this is a, a model that is very familiar to me. It is what we call in business a, a funnel model. I primarily focus on marketing and sales uh, for my clients. And we look at it and we say, well, how do you get more leads? And then how do you turn those leads into opportunities? Mm-hmm. And how do you turn those opportunities to customers? And the same sort of funnel can be seen in the data that we try to produce around a virus. You have people that get infected and those that get infected will have symptoms and they go to the doctor, that's the next Mm -hmm. level. And then those that go to the doctor, some of them actually go to the hospital. And then those that in in the hospital, unfortunately, there's a certain portion that die. And, And that's the way that the CDC, for example, looks at what they call the burdens. When the virus first came out, I said, something is wrong with the funnel because they're telling me these numbers but I know how the funnel works and something is off. And that's what made me sort of pique my interest in this whole endeavor. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Like, tell me what you think was off about the funnel. Well, at first, of course, it was the, the blatantly obvious wrong issues where the CDC or sorry, the WHO came out and said that the fatality rate is a 3.4. Yeah. If, if it's a 3.4 fatality rate, it's time to close up camp and, and go live in the caves again. And we did that anyways, apparently. But <laughs> the idea was uh, this was far cry from what I, I thought I would expect to see out of it. The, uh, you know, my, my general premise has been this has been a challenging virus. We still are learning a lot about it. Um, the pandemic apocalypse that they promised us never came about. Right. The flatten the curb motif, which was there to make sure that, you know, they, they predicted that every hospital would turn into a mass unit. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen. And we kept the lockdowns going for some whatever premise. And all along the way, we're making very, very bad decisions. And as Professor Ionadidis says at Stanford, we are making decisions on really, really bad data. Yes. That's um, one of my biggest problems with the entire thing. And I think that the bad data that was communicated into the public sphere via the media and some of the political leaders and then, of course, you know, being intentionally misled by China via the WHO. The data that you and I have been focused on and, you know, some of these other people have been focused on for the last few months is data that was available a few months ago. Right. Like, do you feel like you have a radically different picture of things now um, in late May than you did in mid-March? 
No, that, that's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. I, I don't. I think my prediction says to how this would play out on the last set of burdens, the death burdens were way off. Mm-hmm. The burdens that I had as far as the, uh, the the channels, who would get infected, how many would go to the hospital, how many would be hospitalized, I was pretty accurate there. The death numbers are all over the place, and it's really hard for me to get my head around it. Now, the one thing I will say is that, uh, you know, I think we all treated this as kind of like a national pandemic. Yes. And what we should have done is treat this like 50 different countries. Yeah. Because 60%, you know, if I have this chart. If you go to my Twitter handle, it's just Justin underscore hard. You can see it right pinned to the top, and it shows a, a bubble chart. And this is just a way to depict kind of the relative size at state level, I love to get down into the counties because that's where everything happens, right? Mm-hmm. And when you go to the county level, you'll see there's a big, big blue uh, circle there for New York City, yeah. and it's on the size of deaths. And if you go 100 miles out from New York City, that's 44 counties, and they account for almost 60% of all the deaths. If you go out 250 miles from New York City, that accounts for 75% of all the deaths. And so if you're here, like I am in San Diego, or you are in Los Angeles, or, you know, even in Utah or elsewhere, your experience of the pandemic is a very different one. But in many ways, especially here in California, the stringent matters we took into our place were, were there. Now, you know, the data issues were prevalent, and, and I try to find ways and analogies to relate this because sometimes it's not intuitive. Um, I wrote an article on March 12th. It was, uh, I think it was titled, uh, The Coronavirus Dashboards Will Kill Us All, right? <laughs> and it was because we, we, we started treating the virus like an election, and we expected overnight results. Uh-huh. And what that got in a profession like virology and epidemiology, who are used to taking years to get their data out, is that everything was rushed to market. And we expected our precinct counts to wake up the next morning and tell us everything that was happening. And, and so all the data that you see on the dashboards is is pretty much wrong, okay? And I'll, I'll explain in an analogy, I'll explain in a short analogy why that is, okay? I, I have a 17-year-old son, and during the lockdown, and I have kids uh, who are also teenagers, I might go into the room, and I might find a big bag of empty Starburst wrappers, right? Uh-huh. And I'm thinking, I empty that thing out, and I'm going, oh, my gosh, I got to take my kid to the ER because they just ate all this candy, right? <laughs> that's that's what our experience is waking up every morning. Now, if my kid was dutiful, which they are, they're great kids, they maybe had taken a marker and, and written down a date on when they ate each one of the Starbursts. So one was marked on March 15th, one was marked on April 1st, one was marked on May 3rd, and, and so on, right? And now I want to look at the dates and go, oh, I'm not that concerned. Mm-hmm. But that's what happens. We wake up in the morning, and because the data lags, mm-hmm. then we get the big pour of the bag, and we go, oh, my gosh, 1,700 people died yesterday. But that's not the case because yeah. those deaths are layered into the past. If you sprinkle them over a, a date line, that's what it would look like, right? Yeah. I mean, and and can you speak to uh, – I think that we have the same view on what the word cases means and I, and how the – Actual definition of that word is entirely different from how it's being used to explain the phenomenon of coronavirus. Yeah. So these are, you know, I'll give you an example with influenza. And and this is where, you know, comparisons sometimes work and sometimes don't. But you get the sense of what's usually done. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in 2017, 2018, there are about 44 million people who they assess or they estimate had symptoms 
flu-like symptoms. Mm -hmm. About half of those people went to the doctor, about 22 million. And of those 22 million, in between that burden that I talked about and the hospitalization burden, there's another little step there where they send in specimens mm -hmm. for to see if the person has flu. Now, just to give you an idea, like one-tenth of 1% 1 of all those 20 mon 22 million people will ever get tested for, for the actual specimen sure. of influenza, and probably only then if you're going to the hospital. So we, we test a very, very small amount, which was one of the problems is all of a sudden we had to ramp up our testing to test everyone in the world and it just, it, it's just been a, a fuster cluck since that time. So uh, I, <laughs> I think well the, pronounced. Well, the, the, the challenge is really understanding that we really weren't built for this, right? right. Uh, and, and I think that's been part of the problem is, um, and this is a little bit of a defense, I will say, for the Fauci and Burks and CDC crowd. It's like they were not built for this overnight race. Mm -hmm. And maybe we should have been. Maybe we should have looked at that. But they're used to working at that pace where they're not you know, troubled by trying to get out you know, the latest data. And this is where it comes down to the county again. Now, think about, you know, your own experience with anything that happens at a county level. And when you think about it, aside from your taxes and all the national news, everything that affects you is kind of at the local level. Right. Yep. And so you can imagine how slow your hospital is, for example, to get you a bill if you had an ER visit there. You can imagine how slow it is when someone dies. They notify the next of kin. They get the coroner's report. It's reported to the county. The county webmaster, if he happens to be awake at that hour or, or working over the weekend, he adds it to their tabulations. The state webmaster then looks and says, hey, what did county so-and-so down Poda add that to my totals? And then your dashboard that you love, that you live, and you just inject that into your veins, they finally get it. And here's the timeline. If you see an infection that comes across a confirmed case, uh -huh. as we call it, right, if it shows up today, it likely was an infection that happened 12 to 15 days ago. Uh -huh. And if it's a death, it's an infection and a hospitalization that happened maybe a month ago, right? Yeah, or even longer, yeah. Exactly. And so those, those the, the confirmed cases is, is another point, as you, I think what you were getting at is we only know a small subset of who actually gets sick and who's confirmed, right? right? There, there are a set, I put out a, a video this morning kind of explaining it. I'm here on vacation in Palm Springs, actually, just... We, we were supposed to go up north to, to do some college training. Uh, we had a, a family member who had a house there. We said, can we take just a couple days to get away? We left San Diego. And we've been here. Kids are still doing Zoom school and everything else, and I'm still doing podcasts. And I couldn't help myself. I went out and bought just a whole bunch of cheap plastic cups, and uh -huh. I set them out on the table. And I said, here are eight cups that represent 8,000 people in Los Angeles who mid-April were infected. And that was an important date because there was a serology test. Uh -huh. There's this great Scrabble word called seroprevalence, which basically means that someone went out and just took some blood samples of people around the area or nasal swabs and tried to determine, hey, have you actually had the virus? Because when you go through any sort of virus like influenza, pneumonia, or like the uh, SARS-CoV-2, you will get those antibodies, which will start producing and start fighting anything. And it's a trace that you've already had it. Well, it turns out 45 times the number of confirmed cases have actually have it in Los Angeles. And if, with 10 million people, instead of mid-April, there being 8,000 people who probably had the, the coronavirus, it was 360,000 people. Yeah. 
and most of those had no idea that they had it right. and were just fine. And so it's a, it's a difficult proposition to understand all those things. Well, yeah. And then you have the um, just the conflation by the media of new confirmed cases with new infections. And, you know, we keep they keep displaying Texas has a thousand new cases. And it's like, OK, well, that could mean a thousand tests that were positive, confirming that the person had antibodies, which is not at all the same as a new infection, because a new infection would be something that we could consider, you know, dangerous or potentially dangerous, depending on what that person's age is. uh, We would know that they are out in the community, potentially uh, transmitting the disease to other people. But somebody who has a positive antibody test is not only over the disease, so it's not a new infection, it's very unlikely that they're able to spread it to anyone else. Um, I don't know if that's 100% confirmed as in, as impossible, but the likelihood is diminished to like a near zero possibility. And so when we hear there's a thousand new cases, if we know that they were a thousand new cases from January and nothing happened, those are entirely different messages for a brain to receive. Yeah. And, and you know, there, there was a great example I gave. Uh, this was back almost a month, well, a month plus April 4th. Uh, the singer Pink, right? She came out and said that she had actually been tested like two or three weeks prior and had been tested positive for the coronavirus, for COVID-19. And so she stayed at home dutifully, but she announced it to the press. She went to her private doctor about two or three weeks later and got another test, and this time it was negative, and that's when she came out. Um, at that same time, Vice President Pence had made it a mandate through the CDC that the data collected by private doctors should also be made available to the public, to the county, and then rolled up. So it's very possible that Pink's positive tests from three weeks and her negative tests from that same day were submitted on the same day for the <laughs> same person, a positive, <laughs> negative, cancel each other out. We have no idea what's going to happen. And, you know, the CDC itself says on its data, you shouldn't trust our data until maybe one or two years at least after the fact. So it's going to be a while. And I've, I've encouraged skeptics in a, in, a, in a little broadcast yesterday that, look, you're going to lose this, this short-term battle, all right? Yeah. Let, let's call out the numbers where we see them, like the, the crazy death counts that are going up and down in Colorado or New, Jersey, or New Jersey or anywhere else. Let's talk about the dates and make sure people understand what the onset of illness date is, what the death date is, how that matters, and why they shouldn't believe the death. Um, two things, getting back to work and making sure that, that we have the, the triggers in place so that we can get buy-in at the very least before we try something like this again. God, man, that is one of the things that has frustrated me the most, and I think that you're on the same page with that. I mean, people are... Uh... You know, I've been going back and forth with with Claire Lehman, who's been, you know, who she's the uh, the editor of Quillette, which is, you know, pretty decent online um, kind of news and political discussion forum. Um, But she is she claimed the other night that it was basically a uh, scientific experiment done on humans against their will to for Sweden to stay open. And that is incredibly confusing to me because from my perspective, we are in the experiment here. Like pandemics have gone through society before. There, There is nothing – There's this is a new virus, but this is not a new state of humanity. Being locked 
into your homes and told to stay there and that you can't work and being paid not to work while uh, people's livelihoods, their <laughs> life's work, their businesses are systematically destroyed by an external force without their choosing. Like this is the crime against the population, you know? Yeah, uh, Sweden is the control group in the scientific uh, you know, explanation there, right? They, they're the ones who did it normally. You you typically quarantine sick people. When you quarantine health people, that's called a dictatorship. And <laughs> we somehow got in our minds that we needed to go to that extreme level. Um, there was actually a warning document in 2009, I think it was, when these first uh, sort of recommendations of strict lockdown started appearing in academic circles. And they said, you know, if you're going to do this, you should, as a public, try to get buy-in from from the populace before you you know yeah. take this upon them and I, I can't think of a single individual uh, I've been a, a a ardent Trump supporter but I've been extremely disappointed in fact I, I came out publicly and said uh, you know when he when we went through the first two weeks the first 14 days to stop the spread right and then he came out on the lawn and said we're going through another 30 days I said I think he just lost the election um, because I, I I think you know it's it's hard enough to get people, and I know this being in the political arena for a while there, to come out and get excited to vote for you. It's even more harder when you've taken away their job, right? Yeah. And no matter if you know he, he can he can put the blame down on the the governors, and I think there's some due cause to do that. Mm -hmm. But in general, when you acquiesce to those sort of forces and those trends without you know a second thought or without even as you say getting buy-in, I never really felt like people said. Wow, I feel your pain, type of thing, right? Because uh, I'll, I'll tell you myself, I'm, I'm a business consultant. My main client was actually down here in Palm Springs. He he uh, he runs a, a high end uh, getaway, uh, d uh, an intense instructional three day course for retired boomers for golf, right? <laughs> yeah, awesome. Th that business is dead, right? And so uh, I lost all my clients in this whole thing and had to sort of regroup and see what's what's happening, but. Uh, I really raised the alarm bell in San Diego and helped rally uh, some really good listening ears there at some of the supervisors. And you realize now how important local politics are, right? Man. Yes. I mean, watching uh, Garcetti do his thing and, I mean, the, the scolding of adults is unbelievable to me. The capriciousness with which they uh, – change the rules. I mean, Gavin set out a, uh, a series of guidelines last week, like that you couldn't have any COVID deaths for 14 days and that cases couldn't rise for 14 days, like crazy stuff that like was impossible on its face. But that, that was what they said was guided by the data a week and a half ago. One week after that, three days ago on Monday or two days ago, whatever it was, he rescinds all those guidelines. Now, that should tell you two things. One, that they don't know what the hell they're doing. And two, that those guidelines didn't make sense in the first place. That's right. And, and really, you know, we're in a fortunate position where there were some natural pressures that could be exerted here in California. Otherwise, I fear, like, for example, I don't think Virginia is going to have Virginia is going to have some issues trying to get out from underneath their uh, governor's thumb is that the cities, the, the counties in, in California can collect some income taxes. The state obviously collects a lot mm -hmm. of income taxes. The cities, however, 
and city budgets were imploding everywhere. And so the, the, the pecking order went, the city mayors just got all up in the grill of the county supervisors. The county supervisors felt the pressure and they brought that up to Newsom and we, you know, sort of lit the fire, if you will, myself and others and, and yourself, you're just trying to say, look, this is not what you're seeing. And I think they overrode sort of the very um, conservative or the very struct structured strictures of our health directors who would obviously, you know, like any good doctor, if, if my doctor ran my life, they'd say, you stay at home and don't, you know, run your car and don't eat anything that uh, isn't fresh. Right. And that right. would be a very boring existence, which sure. it has been for the last two or three months. Also right? one where nothing can be sustained because there's no economic activity. Right. Right. And, and I, you know, look, uh, I was mentioning yesterday, there's some there, there's one way in which COVID-19 is, is not like influenza in, a, in, in some ways, but in this way in particular, I think it's a positive note, which is uh, it seems to have spared our youth, right? If, yes. if COVID was like influenza, there would be a thousand kids dead under the age of 18 and about 150 to 200 infants dead. And that would be a very sad case. Um, the, the sad part though, is that we've basically um, thrown that out the window, a, uh, a, 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 infant mortality study came out yesterday showing that 250 to 300 to 400,000 additional infant deaths over the next decade because of the massive poverty that we've inflicted on people because of the shutdowns. That is fucking uh, these, It is. And I, I think that's the consequences. And when I, when I look at these uh, really uh, artifice uh, death numbers that are really difficult to interpret and understand, and I look at 50 to 60%, in some cases, 70% of all deaths, coming from nursing homes uh, and then those being revised up and down and left and right, you just realize, imagine if our leaders had put half as much energy and political capital into protecting the most vulnerable among us yeah. instead of making sure that we stayed welded to our homes. You know, uh, and, it's a sad artifact. And the, the thing that's, you know, really dawning on me just, you know, the last week or so is that, you know, we did the first stimulus bill, which was 2.2 trillion. And then there was some, some backside cost of that too. I, f and then all the economic activity we're losing and then potentially another stimulus package. We're talking about potentially paying $10 trillion to have potentially saved a few hundred or a few thousand maybe people that were primarily above the, their, expected lifespan on actuarial tables. And I mean, it's not to try to be insensitive about these people's lives, of course, but if you're looking at this from a public policy perspective, then it's not like you, you can't say things like one death is worth whatever we have to do. Like, no, it isn't. You know what I mean? Right. It, look, it's a, it's a, they, they were, they were go banking on some very unknown unknowns as uh as they used to say, right? And and I think we have to give them some sort of credence and some sort of leeway to say they didn't know a lot and they made some choices that were probably wrong. Mm -hmm. That's probably the kindest thing that I can say there. Right. And I, can, I, I think on the other agreeable right? with that. I had no problem with the lockdown for the first two weeks. Yeah, ex exactly. I thought we were all kind of game for that there. But when it became obvious that this was a very regional problem, and, you know, when you talk to your neighbors, I have a neighbor who's a doctor and he's like, 
this place is empty and I'm not, you know, I have another friend who's a nurse and she's like, I got, you know, no work because they're not sending me to work. And when you start seeing hospitals close and the irony of hospitals closing for lack of patients is something not lost on the general public, I think. Um, I saw something yesterday about how they knew for sure that cancer screenings were down something like 25 or 30%. Maybe it was even more than that, but they knew that obviously instances of cancer weren't decreasing. I mean, people are still getting cancer at the same rate that they were getting cancer, but just now we have thousands upon thousands of people who don't know it yet. And a two month lag in terms of catching cancer early is a real problem. Yeah. There's a, there's a calculus that the WHO and the CDC use, which is uh, years uh, of life lost, okay, uh, YLL. And, and what that means is they, they try to look at, well, uh, it, you know, what impact did this have? See, if, if someone who uh, is in a nursing home and the average stay in a nursing home before they move or pass away typically is about five to six months, um, 8,000 people in nursing homes die every week. 40,000 a month, which is a stat I didn't know before this, right? Mm -hmm. And so being able to take that as context, but think about this, for example, um, when you look at, for example, influenza and the impact it has in society where it takes a lot of youth, and if the average sort of life expectancy is 80 years, you have an infant die, you've lost 80 years of man life in there or woman life, and that has an impact on society. It certainly has an impact on those parents, those siblings, um, and, and the general calculus in general. When someone passes away at the age of 80, 85, or 90, uh, the impact on society is, is much less, and it's no less sad or it shouldn't be grieved less. But when you add those all together, it comes out to about even. And uh, uh, but we'll imagine how many more lives we could have saved had we dedicated those sort of resources to making sure that, one, we didn't send COVID people into nursing homes in the first place, right? And that was the dictate that both our Governor Newsom and that Governor Cuomo made to uh, make sure these nursing homes accepted these post-operative folks who uh, were coming out of COVID and probably still infectious in many ways. Yeah, I, th I don't think a lot of people know that in California because it hasn't been as pronounced as what Cuomo did directly, but California is still open for the same thing, and nursing homes are forced to take people if that's what they're told. Am I right about that? Yeah. Yeah. You are. And look, you, you mentioned hospitalizations and, and visits for other things other than COVID. Yeah, I, I'd be nervous if I were going to a doctor, too, if I were going to a hospital and just looking over my shoulder and making sure no one's coughing and everything else. And yeah. uh, I think that's why you see those downturns. Now, the, that's the reality. Like, here, here's another example where I encourage people in on, on my side of the spectrum of the skeptic side there to say, look, you're, you're going to be asked to wear a mask. And maybe you have to live with that for a little bit. That's a that's a battle that you can choose to fight right now. Mm -hmm. Myself, look, I got to wear one to go get food for the store. I'm just going to deal with that. Yeah. I'll, it, it'll settle down a little bit. There's a lot of PTSD that people are going through. Yeah. And hopefully we can get over that very quickly because you got to get back to the hospital and you got to get back to work yeah, and school, frankly. That's one of my primary concerns is the PTSD factor. Like when is – when is society going to come to terms with the fact that they don't have to be scared? Not everybody out there is a vector of disease. It is totally possible for us to protect vulnerable communities for less than $10 trillion. Um, 
all of this stuff is perplexing to me. Uh, one of my, one of my real concerns, and I know you share this about people like Gavin Newsom and, and Eric Garcetti is that with these strictures still in place, we are now six or seven or eight weeks past when they were effective. And even if we could say that the two weeks to four weeks at the beginning were this kind of informational period where we really needed to get a handle on what's going on, I'm, I'm open to that. But as soon as we realized that what we thought was going on is not what was going on. And then we, we extend this for four more weeks, five more weeks, six, six more weeks, eight more weeks. We have dug ourselves into a hole that is going to be very difficult to dig out of. And the other thing about that is that that extra four, five, six weeks was spent increasing people's level of fear rather than decreasing it. And so now we have people who are still horrifically scared of this thing and are going to be in some way unable to return to normal life and their normal habits, which will hurt the recovery. And that really bugs me. And that's the one thing about the masks that I can't just accept on its face. You know, like I do not want to participate in the same culture that drove us into this problem to begin with. You know, it's nice to be cautious about the right things. But like if you are wondering about whether or not you should go outside when it's raining and you stay inside because you're concerned about being struck by lightning, then what you have is an entirely irrational fear. You know, yes, it could happen that you get struck by lightning, but the chances are so minute that if you lived your life basis based on the likelihood of you getting struck by lightning and that caused you to stay home all the time, you would be a person who's not prepared to live life. That's exactly right. I'll, I'll give you a couple stats just to use that people can use then to, you know, tell their family members or friends. I have one that I use that is, uh, it's still accurate right now, but it'll change with time, which is to say there are 3,100 counties in the country. About 500 of those house a third of the population or more. And if you're in one of those 500 counties beyond the scope of New York City, you have a better chance of being murdered than you do of dying of COVID right now. Jesus. And in those other counties, you have a, a slightly higher chance of of, uh, of being murdered by your spouse, right? There's just there are a lot of different <laughs> factors that, that go to that. And then on top of that, I think the more appropriate analogy is one that professor from Stanford came up with, which is if you're under the age of 65, your chances of dying COVID are about the same of dying and in your commute to work. And if you're over the age of 65, they're about the same, slightly higher, maybe the chances of driving to uh, your work if you're a professional trucker, right? Still very low, but a little bit more pronounced. Mm -hmm. And, and the, those are the sort of the risk factors that you need to take into account and just say, wow, this really is not this piece here. And I think, you know, there's certain people, for example, um, I, I'm just worried. I'm just glad I don't have to worry about my kids. Uh, there was a, a statistician who did some work recently, and they compared a 20-year-old to an 80-year-old, right? And if you took the 80-year-old as the highest risk person in our society or that strata of dying of COVID, every 20 years below 80, your risk would basically be reduced by eight times. So if, if you're 60 years old, your chances of dying are eight times less than they would be if you were 80 years old. And 64 years, if you're 
64 times less if you were 40 years old. Mm -hmm. If you are 20 years old, again, we're talking exponential here. If you are 20 years old, your risk of dying compared to the 80-year-old are 500 times less, right? And yet we still have you know real questions as to whether or not any schools are going to open in the fall. And, and those are difficult propositions because it's like these are the least susceptible students right. in you know the, the people in the world. And we're denying them the, the chance to get out there and, and basically be part of society. Yeah. I mean, I am really worried that this is primarily a PR problem right now and not a public health problem. And I feel like it has been that for five or six weeks, which is not to say that the public health problem isn't there. I just mean that the threat we face right now is our leaders inability to provide any sort of context to this situation, uh, any sort of comfort anything that is going to make people feel safe about returning to their regular lives. I mean, the catastrophizing that's gone on in California about what might happen if people go to a bar or a restaurant or a concert or a sporting event, all of it is completely out of line with what the numbers actually say. And, you know, I'm sure that your early skepticism, just like mine, was met with, well, we're just listening to the experts. We're just listening to the data. And it's like, well, no, you're not. Because I'm looking at data that says exactly the opposite of what the news is saying right now. And we know that they're cherry picking data and we know that they're almost constantly wrong about everything. So why in the world are you going to this secondary source to get your information when the data is right there? Like it's it's out there online. People like you, uh, you know, I think you also follow this guy, Phil Kirpin. In fact, I think that's how I found you. Um, he had something yesterday. I think it was him. It could have been you. Um, if you're not familiar with these statistics, I don't want to make you react to them, but it was something along the lines of that there were more people that I, I think maybe this was Pennsylvania or maybe Minnesota, but there were more people who had died who were over 95 years old than under 65. Right. Right. That's exactly. You know, Phil made that point. Phil's a longtime friend of mine, and he, he's been great at really identifying uh, the nursing home problems across the country and tallying up those those numbers. And they're they're devastating. It's just crazy to look at. Uh, and, and, you know, here in San Diego or where I, where, I, where I live in San Diego, we had a supervisor who went and dug into the numbers and found when it came to people who had no comorbidities and were you know under the age of 80, there were like six out of 200 deaths, yeah. right? A six true, as we would say, right. this definitely looks like COVID impacted this person primarily. Now, it's not to say that COVID didn't exacerbate these things and cause a premature death. Anyone it you know, who, who did, dies yeah. early is, yeah, exactly. But having that context is just, it's important for people to understand, right? And that the risk is there. But, you know, unfortunately, we're all going to suffer a little bit of PTSD. So I'm, I'm giving people a little bit of leeway there there as quickly as God knew some moves to change all the requirements that we force his hand to. Yeah, man. I just, I'm so concerned about uh, how we're going to like re-enter real life in a way that's effective enough to uh, kind of cut off the social impact of what's happened here. Um, yeah. And so you just brought up something right there that I wanted to discuss. Uh, the, the difference between dying of COVID and dying with COVID because people still seem to be, really confused about this, even though for 
well over a month. I think it's probably about six weeks now since, you know, the Illinois director of public health. There's a video online of her talking about how they classify COVID deaths. Dr. Burks has talked about it, but we're talking about um, a COVID death being anything where they have gotten a positive test for COVID and the person died or even the person died and they have reason to suspect it might have been COVID. So all of those things are getting lumped into the COVID death statistic that we are getting. And I mean, we already talked about some of the other problems with that, but this is a, a crucial thing to understand and one that it seems intentionally has not been put into the public conversation. Yeah, my first taste of this was early uh, April. Uh, New York City changed its reporting to to that effect. They had just put out PDFs and given updates like a lot of states and a lot of counties did. But early April, I think it was April 3rd, they put a whole GitHub up there. They put a whole set of data in a very formal data setting which basically allowed you to drill down on all the data historically and everything else there. Now, their data guys were very good. They have a very, very clean GitHub install there, instance there. And when you went into the details, I think the data guys kind of pressed them and said, I need to know where this data came from. And so in a footnote, in the data guys, in a very, very nerdy place called GitHub, there was a note that said, these hospitalizations, the number of hospitalizations that we see are based on estimates. And those estimates were based on comparing typical symptoms that a COVID patient would have with anyone that was hospitalized in the last month or more. And that's why the stat that always stuck out, the header for the hospitalization wasn't hospitalized. It was hospitalized anytime at, at any time. Right. And I was like, what does that mean? They were going back a month in time or more to say, oh, I think we saw a COVID patient who was in the hospital before this thing even started up. Oh and they've been doing the death counts the same way as well, which is basically we think that there is an estimate here. And you see, for example, in the last two days, Colorado, followed by New Jersey, have actually said, you know what, we're going to back those things out. And I think in Colorado, it went down by 25 percent. Yeah. In New Jersey, they took a big chunk of change off there as well. So these numbers are going to fluctuate up and down, and it's a data guy's nightmare. Because, again, it's, it's not so much even just like, oh, I was right, you were wrong. It was like we based policy on this, yes. right? The reason why the, the everyone got upset, I got upset, that's kind of where I, where I took off in, in, in my sort of Twitter uh, infamy here, was calling out the model, the IHME uh, Murray model. And I went back and I said, their numbers are completely off even now. What does that mean? And again, no, look, I've gotten models wrong. I got my death projections wrong on this thing in mid-March. I think everyone did. But the idea was I didn't ask anyone to bet the world economy on my numbers, right? right. right. I didn't say you better pull the trigger and have everyone stay at home and wreck the entire world over my math that was apparently 14 years old in some cases, right? Yeah. Th those are things that as data people, you need to be very self-aware about. And, you know, be a little humble and saying, look, you know, here's the risk assessment. And, and these numbers come along so far and few between uh, in epidemiology and virology, as we say, there's these upper bounds and lower bounds. And basically, if you think of like a big straw and they say, hey, if the number is uh, uh, if, if the number fits, it's going to fit into this big wide straw. Right. Rather than trying to t narrow target a very, very tiny coffee straw and say, you can bet your you know, bet the bank that it's going right. to go right through this straw. Right. And they just – these numbers were so wide that politicians didn't understand that you have to base policy on that. 
And we're all, you know, the worst for it. Well, yeah. And the media gave us the top line numbers on all of these models. Um, let me, uh, linger one second on the difference in these deaths. And then I want to talk about, uh, the models because, you know, the everybody kind of accepts that the death count is off in one way or another. Now, I accept, and I think that you do, that it's probably off in both ways. They've probably missed a bunch of COVID patients and also uh, overcounted these possible COVIDs where, at least conceptually, the way we think about it, especially if you're thinking about public policy, it's it's an entirely different scenario to know that this virus is lethal in itself and will kill people at XYZ rates, whatever. It's a different thing to say, okay, there are some extremely unhealthy people in this world and COVID has a chance of burning through that entire group. So we need to protect that group. But these aren't just, this, this virus isn't just spaced out over the entire population the way that we kind of picture it to be. And then Fauci, you know, when he gets asked this question, his answer is always, well, we're almost certainly missing a lot of people. Like, I would really love for someone to ask him, well, how many are we overcounting that are possible COVID but may not have COVID? I don't understand why that question doesn't get to him. So I don't know if you want to comment on that. but Yeah, well, look, I, I think, again, as I said, it's going to be a little bit before we know the numbers. But we're, we're seeing actually that there may be some undercounting in some interesting ways that have an impact on the lethality of the virus. Um up until about a week ago or so, the CDC was making numbers available for COVID deaths, for pneumonia deaths, and for influenza deaths. The reason we were so sure about making those numbers known is that for influenza and pneumonia, there's an actual device that sits at about 10% of doctor providers and hospitals around the country. And the CDC has a direct line into these things. Literally, they punch into the device the person's temperature and the symptoms that they had, and then they get that real time. And that's their, what they call their surveillance network, okay? Mm -hmm. And an interesting thing happened uh, early on uh, last year, sorry, last year, late last year, in the October, November, December timeframe. All of a sudden, the specimens they started sending out to the labs from people that were punching in the influenza and pneumonia, the, the, the pneumonia keyboards there, had come back with something that wasn't recognized. Mm -hmm. And it's very possible, now that we know have a lot more evidence, that COVID was with us. And I wrote this on, on March 9th. Has COVID been with us since late last year? Yeah. And if it has, then the starting point of the epidemic moves two months back, mm -hmm. and its virality grows, its lethality drops, and we have some interesting things to look at. And so we're having those first sort of notions as to what's what's happening in that realm, because the CDC just started to make available some interesting death numbers. Now, we're not going to get to know everything until about maybe the end of the year. So, for example, you've heard the number come up that there are no 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 more. You know, there were about the same deaths in the 2019 2020 season as there were last season and the previous season when you cumulatively add up all the people during this sort of death season that we see over the winter. And while that's accurate, we don't know what the divots were, right? We know, mm -hmm. for example, there are fewer deaths on the road because we were all staying home. So did COVID fill that divot? 
and we're just seeing those same things. So we, we don't have the non-natural deaths because there's no keyboard at the hospital say this guy died in a car accident. Sure. There's no even keyboard device that says this guy died of cancer. And then, as I said, it's only 10% of hospitals. They then have to extrapolate to the rest of the county and the state to understand what's happening there. So this is a really interesting dilemma that they'll have going forward. But we're slowly getting peaks of little pieces of information because they they gave us a few more cases of here's another way a person dies. And that was from abnormal lab results. And there was a sizable jump in November of last year. And we'll have to see what that means. Yeah. And I mean, that doesn't surprise me at all because, you know, I'm not sure if you listened to the episode about that I did about theorism, but I am trying to uh, map out a way that allows people to use the knowledge that they are actually collecting from the world. I think that we have all delegated our thinking to like higher powers, whether it's Google or a newspaper or our politicians. And we're ignoring things like our friends saying, well, I came back from China in late October and immediately got really sick. And my family members got really sick. Like I have two or three people that I know personally who came back from China at that time and got really sick. You know, we found, I think there was a thing yesterday where they now know that it was in uh, France in either late November or early December. But that, that initial date keeps getting pushed back. It's only moving in one direction. And a lot of these variables that people are relying on, including myself, like I see these variables move in one direction and you know that they're not going to move in the other direction. You know, like we can be pretty sure at this point that enough people under 65 have had COVID and had no issue with it to know that that isn't a threat. We have enough children who must have been exposed to it to know that that isn't a threat. It's not going to go back the other way where all of a sudden we're like, wow, children are just dying everywhere from this thing. No, the virus would have to mutate for that to happen. So when we have a variable that gets pushed back and back and back, and now we're, you know, middle of November, potentially early November, there's no reason to believe this wasn't here that early. That changes everything about how we've looked at this thing. But so the one piece that I'm really interested in is what accounts for the rapid spread and the huge spike, which we all know obviously happened. No one could deny that, but it's almost definitely not the lethality and it's almost definitely the virality. My, uh, my theory, and I don't know if you've heard me talk about this before, but there were, um, 3 billion trips made in what Bloomberg calls the uh, the world's greatest migration, three billion trips made uh, in and out and to and from China for their Chinese New Year celebration. And so that ended around the middle of February. If you take that date and consider all those trips and the potential for spread within planes and trains and then that moving out into the world, that maps on exactly to what the to what the spikes looked like, to when all the deaths happened. In almost every location in the West, the spike has been somewhere around the end of that first week in April and has tailed off completely after that. You know, and again, that's got something to do with the reporting lag and whatever, but, but 40 days from 
the middle of February puts us right to the middle, end of March, beginning of April. I mean, to me, that is just too much to be a coincidence. But I'm, I'm interested in getting your thoughts on uh, what might have caused the, the rapid kind of simultaneous spike and spread at that point. Well, I, I think it's also, you know, it should be noted it's a geographical spread, right? Like we right, talked exactly. about how... Uh, you know, I, I think it's it's several factors higher toward, as you as you get closer to New York City. Right. And what happened in New York City? When I think um, we can see signs of that happening in Italy. Here's a, a little known fact: a uh, hundred thousand Chinese workers yes. have emigrated to Italy yes. over the past seven to eight years for their leatherworks system. Yes. Right. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but you probably do. In Italy and Greek and Greece and and Spain and and Ireland and a few other places in in Europe, their fertility rates that is the the, the point at which uh, their population ceases to increase are underwater and have been for the past decade or so. Mm-hmm. So Italians, for example, by mid-century, 75% of Italians will have no aunts, uncles, brothers, or sisters because they've only had one child and their birth rate is about 1.2. That is 1.2 or 1.3 children for every female in their population. And so this was an age society. They needed people to continue the the, the work there. And so they, they brought in and made a deal with uh, places around Wuhan, China right. to bring in a, a, a bunch of uh, immigrants to help with the leatherworks there. And I think that exposure was very prevalent. I think you also had the worst to worst cases in New York City. You look at, for example, where you are in L.A. and L.A. County has about the population of, of New York City, about a million more people in L.A., mm-hmm. right? But the, the density of, of Los Angeles is about 7,000 people per square mile. The density of New York City with all the boroughs is 26,000 people per square mile. If you look at the island of Manhattan, which could fit Wait, it's got to be Malibu, less than a square mile, right? Uh, no, no. 26,000 people per square mile in, all of, in New York City, including all the boroughs. If you narrow it down to just Manhattan, it's 65,000 people per square mile. Uh-huh. And so that sort of density, uh, I think, impacted everything on that scale. And also, you know, a couple other factors. I think the the subway system, you know, you, you know I lived in L.A. for four or five years. Uh, that's not really a massive you, – you can't even compare the subway sure. system that's in sure. L.A. to that. I live I, – I grew up in the Bay Area and Bart – that's a commute train to the subway. And so Bart? there was just a bunch of factors that – Bart, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the, the Bay Area rapid second, yeah. transport, right? Oh, yeah, and, and so those factors really, I think, played a part in what was happening right there within New York City is that density, and you saw it in Italy as well, and it's it's really unfortunate. Um, one other factor, too, which was interesting, uh, this was from a study that was done about Italy. They had a very light flu season, and so when COVID came in, there were, if you excuse the term, there was a, a bunch, there was a lot of fodder for it to burn through very sure, quickly, sure. and so I think in certain places um, around the country you'll see that same issue. Uh, and again, this fluctuates. Uh, I'll give you an example: a thousand people have died in Missouri. A thousand people have died of influenza this season in Missouri. That's it. Just a thousand people. I think that's mm-hmm. ten times the amount of people that have died, or something like that, in all of Missouri for COVID, and, and it's because. They had a very, very intense uh, flu season, and there weren't a lot of people left over for it to really, you know, get through the rest of that. So there's there's a lot of things we need to take into account when we look at these things strongly. Um, okay, so 
what uh, do you have anything to say about the models? Um, we can talk about Imperial College. We talked a little bit about IMHE um, or is it IHME? I always get that wrong. Um, Something like that. Yeah. So Neil Ferguson created the model at the Imperial College in London. That's the one that said uh, up to 500,000 people could die in the UK and that 2.2 million could die in the United States. Um, that guy, Neil Ferguson, is, you know, at the top of his field, reputationally, uh, institutionally. Um, but he has, to my eyes, gotten every one of these um, pandemics for the last 20 years wrong by factors of a thousand. Um, it's been it's it's crazy to me that we put so much faith in these numbers without getting them into a proper context. I wonder what you what you think about that as a data guy. Look, I, I look at virologists and when these things come around, I mean, you might as well be a historian for, you know, Germany's Oberammergau, right? This a great German festival that happens every 50 years, right? Mm -hmm. That's the whole thing. These things don't come along quite as frequently so they can gather data points. Um, uh, you know, an example I mentioned, for example, uh, I think in the 2017-18 season for influenza and related causes, it was something like 61,000 deaths that year. That was a really high intense season. But because the numbers are so bad or so extrapolated, if you will, the actual sort of range that they have, it could have been 40,000. It could have been 100,000. And, and if I went into my boss and I said, hey, I, I think we're basically going to need about $40,000 or maybe $100,000 to get this thing done, he's going to come back and say, what, are you kidding me? I need better yeah. estimates than <laughs> that. And, and I think if our, you know, if, if President Trump, if our governors knew that these numbers are so wide you could drive a truck through it, then it, it's, it, you would have a very different understanding as to the risks that you're willing to take. Um, now, if it had gone the other way, I, I get it. Like, I, my, my wife maybe watched the movie Contagion for all things at the beginning of March, and I said, <laughs> I'm going to shoot myself. This is awful. And then I realized, oh, this is not one in 12 deaths. It's not even one in you know, 1,200 deaths. It's, it's really going to be an interesting it's – a, it's a mild to moderate pandemic for the vast majority of Americans. And for people that were in the New York area, it was an intense uh, season, and, and you know, we should do what we can to support our frontline workers sure. and the people who are suffering because of this. What do you think this means for the for the future of epidemiology and the way that we go about these things? They have some trust to rebuild for sure. There's a a, a great virologist I know on the online, Chris, uh, I, who's from New Zealand, I believe, a really sharp guy, and he's taking these people to task and saying we need to relook at ourselves in a very strong way and figure out how we got a lot of this wrong, uh, because they got almost everything wrong on this thing. Yeah. And they, I think they know the, the way that viruses react in general, but again, they don't have a lot of experience to go into things. So they you know, we talk about, uh, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell who brought to light and made popular that sort of st social study, which said it takes about 10,000 hours of work to become yeah. an expert yeah. in something, whether a basketball player or a violist, or in my case, you know, a, a data architect. And when you don't have that many sort of real, world examples to work with phones and um those are difficult to, to to stake people's jobs on yeah no kidding man um all right i think we covered most of it yeah i think so there's look uh i, I would say 
for for your listeners, the you know they're they're probably wondering you know where is their state in the in the stage of things. I would go every single one of your county board of of advisors and the board of supervisors. Those are all online. Go and listen into those things. Call in. Make your voice known. Uh, we did that here in San Diego County, and it moved mountains. Good. And we had Newsom in one week go from you know mandating that we have no deaths for fourteen days to throwing it out the window and changing every stat so yeah. that we could reopen on our own timeline. Um, look, you you count. You count as a person. When your family is facing wreck and ruin, yeah. every job is an essential job. And that's kind of where we're at now. Yeah, man, that's a great place to leave it. All right, Justin, thank you so much for doing this. Um, we will see one another on the old Twitter. Uh, guys, if you are of like minds in terms of caring about what the actual data is. There are people like Justin out there that you can follow and see data broken down for you so that you can think about it so that you can put it in your own perspective. You do not have to get this information from CNN screaming headlines. Um, so Justin, thank you, man. Thank you for what you're doing with all the data. I, I'm loving it. It is helping me quite a bit. So I really appreciate that. And I Chris, great to be with on. you. Yeah, man. And uh, if I'm up in L.A., I'll come and catch you. That sounds great, man. Let's talk soon. I right, think. Okay, bye-bye. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and give it a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts so new listeners can take your word for it. You can follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at I'm Your Moderator. If you have feedback, you can email heymoderator at imyourmoderator.com or use the hashtag heymoderator on Twitter. If you'd like to support the show, search Be Reasonable on Patreon, where I'll have additional daily-ish segments in a special podcast feed of the show, as well as my writing and audio readings of those articles. You can also go to anchor.fm slash bereasonable and become a supporter there. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Be Reasonable. Acting as moderator for tonight's broadcast.